The statement from the Supreme Court was terse, and for many, as chilling as they come. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been diagnosed with a malignant tumor on her pancreas. The tumor was treated over the summer, definitively, the court said, and there is no evidence it had spread elsewhere in the body. But still, it was the second cancer scare in just the last nine months for the 86-year-old Ginsburg, and it raised what could be the most momentous question of all in Washington. What happens if Ginsburg, one of the liberal stalwarts on the bench, is unable to serve before next year's presidential election? Will President Trump get to name his third Supreme Court justice and potentially change the court's ideological makeup for decades in the future? And what does Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell do? The same McConnell who just three years ago blocked President Obama's pick for the court, Merrick Garland, from even getting a Senate vote on the grounds that presidents shouldn't get to name justices during an election year. Or has McConnell already laid the groundwork to ditch that standard when it suits his purposes? We'll discuss with Carl Hulse, a New York Times reporter who is the author of a new book on Washington's court battles, and we'll talk to Yahoo News' own John Ward about his groundbreaking investigation into a Georgia vote fraud case on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we hadn't been thinking much about the Supreme Court in uh, recent months, but the uh, Ginsburg cancer story certainly uh, raised the prospect that it could become the story over the next year if her health continues to deteriorate. Yeah, and this is her second bout with pancreatic cancer, I think. Uh, the thing about Supreme Court justices is uh, they get pretty good health care. They get right. these full body MRIs. And the first time around, I believe they discovered a, a tumor on her pancreas, but it was before it had spread. Well, the last one was a lung cancer scare, right? The the one nine months ago. She she but, had no. She had. But she did have a. History. She had she had a history of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. But it had not metastasized. That's what they're saying this time. They're saying it was localized, and they've ended it, and right. there there isn't a a health risk. But I got to say, there are a lot of liberals out there who are going to be holding their breath for pretty much the next year and a half. It um, is and, the uh, ball game in so many different ways. We should point out that she's, you know, she's been back out there. Uh, she had a public appearance, I think, at the University of Buffalo a couple days ago in which she seemed to be her old self, but still. And she's pretty feisty, and it's part of the reason that she has become this kind of iconic, you know, sort right. of super RBG superhero out there for a lot of people. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's she uh, is 86 years old. She is exactly right, right, right. All right. We will get to that soon enough. But we want to bring folks up to date on a couple of stories we have discussed on Skullduggery. Most recently, Jeffrey Epstein, whose uh, death by hanging got a lot of attention, raised conspiracy theories. And we've had a court hearing this week from in which Epstein's victims finally had a chance to tell their stories in court. That's right. Uh, the judge in this case um, did something pretty unusual. When a defendant dies, the judge invites the prosecutors in to dismiss the charges, but usually that's pretty perfunctory. And in this particular case, the judge ordered a hearing and gave the victims of this alleged crime, I don't know whether you need to say alleged anymore, but a chance to speak out. And I think that uh, Judge Berman thought that this was a case of enough public interest that it merited having a full-blown hearing. And I think he thought that this was an opportunity for victims to have some pretty gripping testimony, right? It really was. I'm going to read a couple of quotes here. He is a coward, said Courtney Wilde who has said she was sexually abused by Epstein in Florida at 14. Justice has never been served in this case. This is from the AP story. 
and it just goes on and on. The fact I will never have a chance to face my predator in court eats away at me. This is uh, from Jennifer Arios. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. They let this man kill himself and kill the chance for justice for so many others. Meanwhile, I guess at this very same hearing, Epstein's lawyer challenged uh, the coroner's judgment that this was a death by suicide. Which was predicted a week ago on skullduggery that this would be the finding of the Epstein lawyer pathologist. Yeah, according to the same AP account, Epstein's lawyer, Martin Weinberg, challenged the coroner's finding on Tuesday at the hearing, saying that he'd hired an expert and that that expert had determined that bones broken in his neck were more consistent with pressure, with homicide, than suicide. So for the conspiracy theorists out there, there's a little bit more oxygen for them to run with. But as I think we discussed last week on skullduggery, that is very, it is very common for, in fact, this particular pathologist, uh, Dr. Baden, to give conclusions like that when he's hired by lawyers who are looking for just such a conclusion to challenge a suicide um, assessment. Another court case uh, that we are paying attention to, because we've discussed it before, not getting a lot of press attention until just the last day or so. But Greg Craig, former Obama White House counsel, longtime lion of the Washington legal community, on trial for lying to the Justice Department about his work for the Ukrainian government to burnish its image at the request of Paul Manafort. This is an outgrowth of the Manafort investigation by Robert Mueller. Highly ironic that it has led to a leading Democratic lawyer in Washington uh, being on the hot seat, going on trial, and a brutal story in the New York Times on the trial. I'll just read a few uh, sentences uh, from from it from uh, my old colleague Sharon Lafreniere. Mr. Craig's trial has supplanted any image of Washington's elite as sage Brahmins with a vivid picture of the ruling class at its avaricious worst. The details include a $4 million payment shunted through a secret offshore account to Mr. Craig's law firm, a backdated invoice, a lying publicist, a scheme to net one player's daughter a cushy job, and a bungled wiretap by a suspected Russian intelligence asset nicknamed the angry midget. The angry midget is someone, by the way, who we've mentioned on Skullduggery a number of times. Yes, Konstantin Kalimnik, yeah. who was uh, described by Mueller as a uh, somebody with ties to Russian uh, military intelligence, was sort of Paul Manafort's guy on the ground in Kiev. He also pops up in this Greg Craig story. It is such a sad story. You, you and I have known Greg uh, for a long time. And, you know, the, the irony of someone who, you know, for decades now has been hired uh, by people in a lot of trouble, in part because of his good judgment, ending up in a situation like this, largely because of very bad judgment, it would seem to me, uh, that association with, uh, with Paul Manafort. At some point, I think, according to the New York Times story, uh, Greg Craig said, well, you know, I don't have to be his friend, Paul Manafort's friend, but I can do business with him. Because um, he could bring in big bucks, more than $4 million to his new law firm, Skadden, paid by a Ukrainian oligarch, Viktor Pinchuk, on behalf of the Ukrainian government. This is the pro-Russia government in Kiev. And there was there's an interesting line in the Times story about how uh, there would come... Each time the Ukrainian government needed somebody, they would tap a particular oligarch to foot the bill. And, and in this case, this time it was Pinchuk. It was Pinchuk's yeah. turn. Right, right. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, you mentioned before the reading from the New York Times story, the reference to Manafort's daughter. And this is just, it's a, it's a small... Well, it was, it was the daughter who got the job. Manafort wanted his daughter, who had just graduated law school, to have a job at Skadden Arps. And, and this firm. is just, a, it's a small example of how these beltway bandits, these influence peddlers, throw around their weight, you know, use money to get what they want, and in the, the kind of um, 
swamp creatures that uh, our president talks about. I think this is just a choice exa- uh, example of that. So when she was not qualified for a job at Skadden Arps, apparently one of the best right. firms um, in, in the country. Mm-hmm. She just didn't have the resume or the experience or the, or the law school mm-hmm. grades, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so Skadden rejects her, says no, after which Craig gets a note from Manafort that says sarcastically, thanks for your help. I see Skadden knows how to show appreciation for a $4 million gift account. <laughs> It's just baldly yeah. Yeah. putting in writing. I gave that you he was all this to, money. Now hire my buy daughter. Buy his daughter a right. job. Right. And that's how things get done. Right. In Washington, in a lot of ways. Right. I should point out, just to wrap this up, that there is a supreme irony to this whole story, which is basically Craig is on trial because he did not want to register as a foreign agent of the Ukrainian government because he feared that it would uh, jeopardize not just his chance, but anybody who was working on his team's chance of getting a job in the government again, given that Obama, who was president at the time, had made it clear he didn't want lobbyists working in his administration. So who was on his team that was actually going to go back to the Obama administration? Cliff Sloan, former Clinton White House counsel uh, in the council's office, who was going to go back and be the Gitmo czar to shut down the uh, military uh, facility in Guantanamo Bay, something that Obama had started out saying he wanted to do. Craig was his White House counsel, was passionate about doing. And And was uh, deeply disappointed when, I wrote about this in my book, deeply disappointed when Obama pulled back from that commitment. And I think he thought getting uh, Cliff Sloan in there was was a chance to actually finish that job. So to protect Cliff Sloan's ability to shut down Gitmo, Greg Craig does everything he can to avoid registering as a foreign agent because Sloan would have had to register as well. And according to the uh, prosecutors in the case, lied to them about his uh, public relations work, delivering a copy of his report, hand delivering it to David Sanger of the New York Times. That's what the case is all Guess about. What? Cliff Sloan got that job. Gitmo is still still open, open, and Greg Craig is on trial, and Cliff Sloan had to testify in that trial, so it didn't turn out the way uh, that he wanted. It's sad. It is um, quite a uh, Washington story, but let's uh, move on. And before we do, I should remind all our Skullduggery listeners to follow us on Twitter at SkullduggeryPod. We are joined now by New York Times veteran correspondent Carl Hulse, author of Confirmation Bias, Inside Washington's War Over the Supreme Court from Scalia's Death to Justice Kavanaugh. Carl, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love the name. The uh, confirmation bias. Well, look, your book, which I think came out a few weeks ago, but, you know, seemed newly relevant in the aftermath of the news about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, we don't know how serious the new cancer scare is. She's out there. She's, the court is saying uh, it's been treated successfully. But the question is, if she cannot serve on the Supreme Court over the next, uh, at some point in the next year and a half, what happens in Washington? It's not a she doesn't serve. She needs to be alive to keep her seat. I mean, she doesn't have to show up there. So it's, not one, of, it's not one of those things where I don't feel well, because I think it would take. Mitch McConnell has said that none of the liberals will leave the court without a significant life-ending event, which I thought was quite an interesting phraseology. Uh, and there's only one significant life-ending event, but we don't want to talk about well, that. Well, it could be yeah. caused by yeah, yeah, d- in different ways. That was the way he did it. Right. Yeah. So, of course, I got quite a few telephone calls after the news broke. It's like, what does this mean? She spoke at the University of Buffalo, I yeah, think. Yeah, she just it, got it an was, and, or something. Yeah. Right, and seemed very uh, vibrant and healthy. So I know that the Democrats around the city and around the country and probably around the world, actually, were like, boy, what a relief. 
You know, this is another difficult thing to say. She's not the only old person on the Supreme Court, by the way. You know, these are not a lot of spring chickens over there. So it's not just what happens with her. It's what happens with other people. So there's a couple of questions, right? And the big one is, well, if it was in the presidential election year, would Mitch McConnell say, let the people decide? As right. he did, that, that as was he did in 2016. In, in now, there's ways that that's fudged and the nuance of it, but it was really let the people decide. And he has already said that because it's a Republican Senate and a Republican White House, that the Republican Senate will decide, that he would move forward. Now, whether or not that would actually happen, he has to get his people on board with that. Some would get queasy about it. I've talked to Lindsey Graham, who's now the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, about it. His basic answer was, well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, but that, let's that all was, hope that doesn't actually, happen. Actually, that was one of the—that's uh, something I had missed, but you have it in your book. We all assumed that McConnell changed the rules of the game post-Scalia nomination fight over Merrick Garland, saying a president shouldn't get to an election year. But I did not know— that McConnell has changed the rules again. Yeah, he's hedged Saying on that. the tradition going back to the 1880s has been if a vacancy occurs in a presidential election year and there is a different party in control of the Senate than the presidency, it is not filled. That was not a nuance well, they, he introduced they back said in that. a few years there ago. Were a few, that would come up occasionally, but that was totally not the message. The message was... And people at the time, even Leonard Leo, the executive vice president of the Federalist Society, you know, the big conservative group that vets judges, he had said, well, of course we wouldn't do it. They've all changed now. Lindsey Graham didn't change 100% in his conversation with me. So they would totally go forward if that was a possibility. However, you have Susan Collins, you have other people, maybe they would balk and say, well, we can't do this. And what but, would the Democrats do? Well, the problem for the Democrats is pretty clear. They have no power over this anymore. It's all gone. This has become a purely partisan exercise. One party can do this on its own. So if McConnell has the Republicans in line, not much the Democrats can do to stop it. They can, you know, raise hell and raise objections to the nominee. And a lot of people think the nominee, I'm not, this is just gross speculation, but say the nominee is uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who is a... Who was in the running. Who was in the running, the, the woman, around. but yeah. Susan Collins was not happy with her because she's seen as a pretty strong anti-abortion force. So they steered clear of her a little bit and kind of held her in reserve. But now they have a few more votes in the Senate, the Republicans, and they don't need Susan Collins' vote. So... Maybe they'd go with somebody like that. The one thing I can guarantee you guys is that if this happened next year, it would blow up the election. It would blow up the Senate elections, blow up the presidential election. You already have Democrats talking a lot more about the Supreme Court, not as much as some of the activists want them to talk, but this would really thrust the court into the middle of the presidential race in a way that I think would be pretty explosive and with risk for both sides. Yeah. You know what, Carl, one of the things that struck me about the book is the Trump administration with these Supreme Court nominations, but also in the lower courts as well, is one of the one of the only areas where they seem like they're a well-oiled machine. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and a lot of that had to do with Don McGahn, Don McGahn. the former White House counsel, who is no longer there. And clearly there's been some tension between Don McGahn and, and it, this president. That's the funny but, thing about Don. He, yeah. he cuts both ways for Trump. Right. <laughs> but almost from the beginning, it seems like uh, this is one area where Trump has been, and the people around him have been extremely disciplined. Yeah. So Don McGahn, Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Grassley, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, you know, they made an agreement. McConnell recognized this right away. So did Don McGahn. We can really have an impact on judges because of the changes in the rules that just, you know, at, that, at the very beginning of the administration, it took about a month to change the rules on the Supreme Court nomination, a month or two. But the rules had already been changed on the lower court. Mitch McConnell is obsessed with the makeup of the court. He and McGahn talked, said, hey, we can really have an impact here. We've kept all these seats vacant by not letting Obama fill them. We can now fill them. And Don in part of his deal to take on the White House counsel job, 
got really sole authority over this. I mean, you guys have been around for a long time. Usually judicial nominations, they go through this huge process and the Bar Association and the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel. There's committees. There's all this stuff that goes on. Don McGahn was calling the shots here with, with help from the Federalist Society saying, okay, here's our guys. Let's go forward. Let's go forward. And McConnell seized on that. And it was, I mean, they have now gotten almost as many appellate judges in three and a half years as Obama got in eight. So that's a big difference. But wasn't it, wasn't right. it Harry Reid who changed well, the he did in 2013. by doing away with right. filibuster for lower yeah. court right. And that, um, that's, they seized nominations. on that. They seized on that. This know, is still a big debate in the Democratic Party whether they should have done that or The not. one really unconventional thing that Trump did actually turned out to be a masterstroke, right, which was during the campaign. Yes. Uh, and actually, when all this Merrick Garland stuff was mm -hmm. going on uh, and McConnell was uh, blocking Obama's nomination, was to put out and make it public a list of conservative judges that he might put on the bench. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I wrote this book was I thought it was unappreciated how much that list and that judicial vacancy help Trump win election. But, well, you say pretty flatly that yeah. it got him elected. I, I, I mean, not many people disagree with that. And the polls showed. I mean, you know, it's hard to say exactly, but it really gave conservatives a reason to vote for Trump. And he says it himself in one of the one of my favorite lines in there. He's, he's been using this line recently in a different construction, but he's standing up there in Iowa. I think it is actually the night Hillary's accepting the nomination up in Philly, where, by the way, the name Merrick Garland was not mentioned in and intentionally not mention the entire convention. What? Intentionally, why not? Because they said they didn't want to politicize him. That was one of the Democratic, I think, missteps that they now agree. They didn't do enough to elevate the Garland fight. But anyway, Trump's out in Iowa, and there's a big conservative crowd, and you know, he says to them, he goes, if you love Donald Trump, vote for me. You have to vote for me. If you don't love me, you still have to vote for me. Judges, judges, judges. We're going to put in the judges that you want. And then he went on to say that if you let Hillary be elected, we turn into Venezuela. And he kind of veers <laughs> off he kind of veers off into that a lot, okay. Venezuela. But so this was a huge thing for him, keeping that seat open. Mitch McConnell didn't mean for that to be the outcome. He didn't say, let's keep this seat open and I'm going to elect Donald Trump. Because Trump was still fighting, and we can talk a little bit about that, what was going on at the time of Scalia's death. But he did say, we're going to block this because conservatives, I need their support. They don't like me all that much all the time. They kind of see McConnell as too malleable on some things. I know that's hard for people to imagine, but they do see him as a deal maker at the end of the day that sometimes he'll cut a deal they don't like. But he wanted to get the conservative support for him. There were a lot of Senate Republicans, and I talk about Hatch and Orrin Hatch, the former chairman of the Judiciary Committee, big player in judicial politics where they thought this was blocking Garland was just a temporary little thing. Everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, including Trump, obviously, right up until the night of the election. So they thought this was just a postponement, but instead it changed history. Yeah. I gave a book to uh, Senator McConnell and said, signed it, Senator McConnell, you changed history. But I, I, then I said to him, I go, but I didn't say which way. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I, I want to get into these Supreme Court nominations. Um, but you actually kind of pinpoint a particular moment in time, which you say was the beginning of the, sort of the modern right. post-Bork era of judicial confirmation battles. And it's really with a, not for necessarily legal geeks like us in Washington, but for you know a lot of people out there, it, it's a name that most people won't remember. Miguel Estrada. Yeah. So tell us why that was such an important, important inflection so, point. I mean, the, the Bork specter always hangs over, and so does Clarence Thomas. He's always hang over judicial confirmation fight. But to me, this was a key thing. 2000 election, George W. Bush is elected. Big decision by which institution? The Supreme Court. So he's considered illegitimate by Democrats. And you kind of have to think back to 2001, 2002, and what the thoughts were of Democrats about George W. Bush. They thought the Supreme Court had stolen the election. And they're worried he's now illegitimate, but he's going to start putting in all these conservatives, take over lifetime appointments, take over the judiciary. So they, they say, we're going to block a lot of these people. We want to force him into consensus. Then a weird thing happened. Jim Jeffords, this is really in the weeds, changes parties. Right, All of a sudden, moment. the Democrats are in the majority, so they can control. So Bush can't really do much on judges until after the 2002 election. 
So 2003, Democrats band together and say, we're going to block these judges that have been pending. And the first test case was Miguel Estrada, Honduran-born immigrant uh, teenager, didn't speak any English, went on to Harvard, worked in the Solicitor General's office, super accomplished person. And the Democrats filibuster his nomination. It's the first successful filibuster against an appellate court nomination. And it's also a nomination to the D.C. Circuit, which we all know is the launching pad for Supreme Court justices. So this really leads to a big showdown, and they, they hold out Estrada, and this colors everything going forward. He was the first one. And as it turned out later, you know, there's so many twists and turns in this, but remember those documents had been stolen from Democratic computers, Pilford, maybe not stolen. There was a security flaw that let the Republicans basically access all their documents. And uh, it turned out that the advocacy groups were saying, don't, we need to block Estrada because he's being groomed for the Supreme Court. Bush is going to get the first Hispanic pick to the Supreme Court. It's going to change the way Republicans relate to the Hispanic voting population. So Democrats blocked it. Uh, Miguel Estrada doesn't talk about it. I included in my book an email from him talking about why he doesn't want to talk about it. And, you know, Democrats today say, you know what, that was a mistake. We probably shouldn't have done that. It gave the Republicans material to work with and reason to oppose our judges later and that they probably had gone too far. So to me, that's the beginning of what becomes all these steps towards Merrick Garland, including the 2013 change that Mike referenced in 2013, Republicans are blocking Obama's picks to that same court, super important court, second most important court in the country, people call it. And so they changed the rules so that you can put in nominees with simple majority vote. And, you know, that just irritates the Republicans. Mitch McConnell stands on the floor that day and says, you're going to regret this, and you're going to regret this sooner than you think. He just wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times (laughs) uh, saying that. And he's saying, don't get rid of the filibuster, which makes me think he's worried about losing the Senate majority, to tell Mm, you the truth. Well, I'm sure he is at this point. uh, He's talking about the next step, which is the legislative And a lot of people think that's gone. And maybe it's going to be gone because Democrats want to add more seats to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, at this point, you know, it used to be confirmation battles were about the nominee. Now it's simply about the vote. Yes. Right. I mean, it's not about what the caliber of the Supreme Court justice is or his or her legal backgrounds or it's basically how are they going to vote? And Merrick Garland is Um, a case, perfect case in point. Right. Because, you know, I mean, this is a this was this was a judge who Orrin Hatch, longtime member of the Senate Judiciary, Republican member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said he would vote for him to be a Supreme Court justice. Well, that's why Obama had actually articulated it, saying, I'm going to hold on to Merrick Garland for a time there's a Republican majority in the Senate because they said they'll approve him. Of course, Orrin Hatch said that when there was a Democratic majority in the Senate and they would have rather had uh, (laughs) Merrick Garland than Elena Kagan. Right. And by the way, I think one reason the Clinton people didn't want to talk about Merrick Garland is because there were people on the left who wanted somebody better for them than Merrick Garland. And it was not a foregone conclusion that she would re-up him if she became president. I actually talked to John Podesta about this. I said, what were you guys going to do? And he, you know what he said? We never really got that far. I doubt if they would have actually right. gone with Merrick Garland. And they would have gone uh, with a much more, him. Yeah. much more progressive yeah. person. Although right. the Obama people weren't really considering any progressive, ideologically liberal judges, right. were they? No. And, well, there were some names thrown out there, yeah. but they were really more in the moderate, you know, Sri Srinivasan was a, a, another one, because they knew they couldn't get it through, which was another point, though the Democrats... There was a Democrats out there who said, well, you know what? The Republicans aren't going to do anybody. So let's pick somebody who can really energize our base, a woman, a minority, a minority woman. And this was a debate in the White House, and they decided to go with uh, well, and and there was also, a, it was also the debate about how quickly they needed to move. Right. And I think that's a very important well, that was one. So, Tell us about it, that. You know, so actually the whole, the day of Scalia's death, I mean, there's so much going on that day. And it, it drove everything that happened later. Antonin Scalia is down in Texas. It's Valentine's Day weekend, President's Day weekend. Congress is out. He goes to this kind of luxury hunting place where there's this Catholic hunting group and, you know, he's found dead. 
and uh, that just set in place so many things. But what's happening that day is that there's a Republican presidential primary debate that night, and Mitch McConnell's down in the Virgin Islands on his vacation. I, I always make this joke. It's, I always have a hard time picturing Mitch at the beach. I don't, I don't, I don't know why. It's just, you just don't. That is was he wearing a, was he wearing a suit? Yeah, I think you had a line in there that even when he puts jeans on, it looks like he's wearing a suit. Yeah, so he's there. And so he loves Scalia, knows him, voted for him. He's in awe of Scalia. And, you know, and you guys can relate to this. You know, in Washington, usually there's this moment someone dies and we all take a breath and say, okay, we know there's a lot of politics here. We're going to pretend there's no politics for a day. And we're going to talk about the person. We're not going to talk about the politics. Well, Mitch McConnell threw that out the window because within hours of learning about Scalia's death, he puts out this press release that says, we're not going to let President Obama get a third nominee on the court. Let the people decide. The election's ongoing. Well, the reason he did that was this debate at night. So he is told by one of his staff who says, you know, if we're going to try and block this, you need to get out there quick because Ted Cruz is going to say this tonight in that debate. And if Ted Cruz says it, no one's going to want to do it. So we right. have so to go ahead. Keep everyone in line and message discipline and right. keep Ted Cruz from saying it first because he, 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 he had already alienated everybody. Right. So people don't want to take instructions from him. So yeah. that affects the way Obama responds, but it also affects the way Trump responds. And this is the origin of the list. Don McGahn is his campaign attorney. He's also in a band. I played a band myself, but Don... I was going to bring that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, have you guys ever had a, like a face-off? No, we should uh, probably... Uh, Don's, Don's a much better musician, and his band is much better than our band. I'll say that. But we can hold our own. So he's going down to Ocean City, driving down Route 50 to play in a weekend gig down there. But he's Trump's campaign attorney. And his wife texts him, and that Scalia's died, and he pulls over into a Wawa parking lot there on 50 and sheds a tear and... And says, well, I need to talk to Trump because this is going to be big at the debate tonight. Ted Cruz is going to try and dominate this. There's already questions being raised. Trump's sister is a federal judge, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and seen as somewhat liberal by the conservatives. So he's like, we got to get ahead of this. So he gets Trump on the phone, and they're talking about it, and he's urging Trump not to be too political. And Trump says, what about if we throw some names out to show who I would pick? So that's the beginning of the list. And the first name that Don McGahn throws out? Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. he really yeah. likes Brett well, Kavanaugh. Tight. But, and, and but, just getting, sorry, but just getting back to Mike's point, it seems like the Obama White House did not act nearly as swiftly right. as, as McConnell did. Right. Because McConnell understands he's got to get out there immediately. Right. Obama doesn't do that. No, he he wants, plays by the book. He wants to play it by the book. So there's a meeting the Wednesday after Scalia dies in the White House. Uh, the president's back from his trip because he had been out in California playing golf. So they're back and they have a strategy session with a bunch of people who've been through this before and you know, talking about what to do. Dennis McDonough, chief of staff at the time, says, okay, let's get out the guide. How do we do this? Start the interviews, that sort of thing. So Ron Klain, who's been involved in a lot of these, both in the Senate and in the White House, at the end of that meeting, pulls McDonough aside and says, Dennis, the president should go in the Rose Garden tomorrow and nominate Merrick Garland. He goes, get ahead of this. You know it's going to be Merrick Garland at the end. Do it now. If you wait a month, the Republicans are going to have a month to get their message set, get everybody together. If you wait a month, it's going to be over. And Dennis was like, no, we're going to do this one by the book because Obama is really an institutionalist at heart, right? He doesn't want to seen, be seen as breaking the norms. So... Ron Klain, he told me that story quite clearly, and it's one of the few things I've heard that people always go, what could Democrats have done different? You know, that was something they could have done different. I'm not sure that anything was going to be sufficient to really change. Maybe you can't change McConnell, but you could change enough other Republicans. But, you know, I think that if they had done that immediately, it might have given them some momentum. And, you know, Garland had been interviewed at least once and probably twice already. So it's not like they would be shortcutting the process. Let's but it didn't happen. Let's talk about Kavanaugh a mm -hmm. little bit. I mean, you have a very detailed reconstruction of the confirmation battle over Kavanaugh, including the moment when he goes out there and gives that first Fox News interview to mm -hmm. Martha McCallum, mm -hmm. in which 
He's denying the allegations of Christine Blasey Ford, but doing it in a very measured, mild way that doesn't win him any applause from the White House, including from Don McGahn, as yeah. well as yeah. the well, president. So, that's a, right. so the thing you need to remember about Brett Kavanaugh, and Trump certainly remembers this, he's a Bush person. He actually worked in both Bush administrations, but was very close to George W. Bush, a real big part of that. That's where his circle is. And I think that people who, from that era, were advising him, you need to go on TV, play it down, you know, build some sympathy. That Bush himself yeah. called Kavanaugh yeah, yeah. and told him that. But they, right. but that was a mistake in Trump world. You need to go out there and fight, fight and fight not and be, fight. The and Bushes fight. were genteel. Right. They were, you know, that's not how we do things. Yeah. But no, yeah. so he, so that, uh, you know, had people worried about him and whether he was going to make it through. But of course, in the end, he does fight in his, in his over-the-top performance on the day where he followed Christine Blasey Ford. And I have a lot in there that was pretty exclusive, honestly, about what happened in that conference room right before. And Don McGahn says, dude, you got to go out there and reboot the room. You need to go out there fighting. You need to go out there hot, push back. They had even practiced this at the White House where they'd brought in some litigators to question him and getting him to push back. So it wasn't spontaneous, but it sort of wasn't Kavanaugh's personality, and that's why it came off the way it did. And it, you know, that actually became an issue for a lot of people. Diane Feinstein, the next day, they were all saying, hey, temperament. Would, yeah, that right? temperament was way off. Right. Now, I know that a couple of your New York Times colleagues have their own book yeah, coming very of, shortly on Kavanaugh. I was first, though, Mike. Right. You, <laughs> you were first. But on the issue, uh, you know, on the issue that got issues that got people inflamed about Kavanaugh and the Christine Blasey Ford allegations, as well as some of the others, you kind of don't really come down one way yeah, or I, the other. I you did, acknowledge that there yeah. was no corroboration for any of the Christine Blasey for any of her account, yes. correct? Yeah. Right. Which well, there wasn't, actually. Uh, there, there wasn't. So given but that, here, here, when you look back on it, you know, this is an account from more than 30 years ago. She hadn't told anybody at the time. She hadn't told anybody for decades. She comes forward with the story. The FBI or the Senate Democrats can't find anybody who corroborates any part of the story. Was it a legitimate issue to try to derail Kavanaugh's confirmation based on that? Yeah, I think that they had to bring it up. They didn't have any choice. I think that I didn't set out in some ways to solve the Kavanaugh mystery, and I hope these other books do, because my thing was more about the Senate politics. I was kind of reporting what went on. The thing that I heard from both Democrats and Republicans about this is they just think it was mishandled. It should have been part of the regular hearing. It should have been brought up with that letter. If you're going to pursue it, you needed to do it through the regular course of the year. Even Democrats on the Judiciary Committee say that. Republicans say, you know, the way they did it was horrible. It could have been brought up. It could have been brought up in a closed session. There were better ways to handle it. Of course, these hearings have degenerated so horribly that there's everything gets handled the worst possible way you can do it. You know, I can't say what went on back then. And you know, what I say about Kavanaugh, he had some other issues with the Democrats. And I mm. think that you are familiar with the Clinton uh, impeachment proceedings. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, he was a Wasn't major... Wasn't he your source for all that, Mike? <laughs> well, you know, actually, I got to say, okay, we've now that's had a... our principal source and it wasn't... on this show, and he's, not and on he's outed board. himself, yeah. and he's not on... Well, George Conway yeah. was a huge player on that uh, issue. Kavanaugh, I knew and had dealings with, but, you know, the idea that he was a leaker of classified or grand jury information was not anything I, I ever experienced or encountered. And it ran counter to everything yeah. I knew about Kavanaugh, which is he was super cautious. I drank yeah. a lot of beer with uh, Kavanaugh once at a party. I think it might have been a New York Times party back in the day and oh, yeah? even after drinking a bunch of beers I couldn't get anything out of the guy <laughs> but he so did, he does but like he, beer by the way he, that? Well, but he we, does I think work we've established that much. he does work he does depressed. Work depressed. let me ask yeah. you about one other and then we'll wrap this up but you know the thing about Blasey Ford was she did present herself with enormous dignity and uh, she was you know, super credible and she was a very credible very good witness 
but there was another case that came up and a bunch of really outlandish allegations brought forward by Michael Avenatti, yeah. who has his own legal problems now. And that was, I think her name was Julie Swetnick. And, and she made these allegations that, you know, essentially he was, that Kavanaugh was involved in, in gang, gang rapes, rape. yeah. you know, uh, college kids lining up, getting women drunk, you know, and that didn't those hearings kind of get out of control? Yeah, well, that was a that, turning point, though. Yeah. The Republicans were thrilled with Avenatti. And if you talk to uh, them, like Mike Davis, who was the judiciary counsel for Grassley, they think that was a huge turning point. Avenatti's involvement saved Kavanaugh. But, but the Democrats, you know, entertained it. Right. And they would mention now, these other allegations, even though there was even less confirmation for any of the other I've allegations. I've talked to multiple yeah. Republicans who think if the Democrats would have just stuck with Blasey Ford, that they might have been able to stop him. And there's several places where they think the Democrats uh, messed up, including wasting their filibuster on Gorsuch who, you know, then allowed McConnell to change the rules on a relatively non-controversial nominee at the time, as opposed to holding back for Kavanaugh when, you know, Republicans say, boy, it would have been, t it's tough enough to confirm him. It would have been tougher yet to change the rules to confirm him at that point. So, you know, the strategy that goes on looks good at the time, but Avenatti was definitely a boost to the Republican side okay, of this. Last uh, question. We've talked about Don McGahn, who's in the news these days because the Democrats on House Judiciary are doing everything they can to get his testimony about obstruction of justice by the president, as well as testimony from Rob Porter, Corey Lewandowski. These are all in the courts right now and will almost certainly wind up in the Supreme Court, what does this Supreme Court do when it gets these cases about whether they can require these former White House officials to testify well, uh, before House hard Judiciary? Well, question to answer, Michael. <laughs> what's the court going to well, do? Well, that's why we're but having I, you on. But I think that, you know, <laughs> yeah. Kavanaugh has, you know, they look favorably on executive power. Who knows? But that was part of the reason at the time they were racing this nomination through. They wanted to get somebody else on the court because they thought maybe Mueller's whole tenure was going to be subject to a Supreme Court decision. I think the general sense out there is that, the, you know, this is a court that's friendly to the Trump administration. I think this is a big problem with the whole, this is the whole... And so therefore the Democrats will get nowhere uh, right. in these they, court battles because they, they will ultimately end up in the Supreme Court and if they don't... And even gun control, ruling, you know, say you can do yeah. things on gun But this is my whole underlying argument in the book, that all this politics is poisoning the well so badly here in Washington that people are going to lose confidence in the courts well, as this neutral yeah. going judge. Going to lose. Right, but they, I mean, it's, getting, it's getting worse. I mean, yeah. the only, the chief justice, though, John Roberts, is concerned about that. Right, um, and he's and doing a lot of things to kind of lower the temperature, but you can't put things off forever. And yeah. at some point, you have to make a decision. Yeah. And, you know, I'm... So, I'm, bottom I'm, line, you, you don't see these confirmation wars, the intense partisan politics around all of this getting dialed back you know, anytime soon. I give all these talks and talk about this and people get so depressed in some ways. But I was like, how do you how do you dial it back? Why would one party when they're in there say, okay, you know, we did all this stuff. Now we're gonna give up some power and and because they know that the other side can just do it again when they get back in. I don't see this it's gonna take some major change in the culture of these nominations to, to have some kind of breakthrough. And I don't see it happening. Or, or legislation changing the makeup of the court or the right. appointment but process, which is what that's, Democrats are talking about. But that's going to be super partisan, too. Sure. I think that, you know, we're stuck with this for a while. You don't see Mitch McConnell slowing down on these judges. He's not saying, oh, you know, we've overdone it. No, he's saying more, more, more. Well, on that uplifting note, Carl, <laughs> thanks so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, it was uh, great. Thanks, uh, Henry, Congratulations on confirmation bias inside Washington's war over the Supreme Court from Scalia's death to Justice Kavanaugh. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. We now have with us our colleague, John Ward, who just recently published a fascinating investigation 
into a case of alleged voter fraud in Georgia. It's known as the case of the Quitman 10 plus 2. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Who were the Quitman 10 plus 2, and why, do, why don't we just say the Quitman 12? Yeah, great question. The Quitman 10 plus 2 uh, was a group of African-American activists, but really just sort of regular folks in a small town just north of the Florida border, Florida-Georgia border. The biggest town that people would know of probably close by would be Valdosta, which is just about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to the east. It's in a county called Brooks County. And so these people, a bunch of them, the leaders of this group were educators, women in their early to mid-50s who had been teaching in the public schools. They decided they wanted to organize and get the vote out around the school board election in 2010. So they did that. They used absentee ballots. They went around to their community. They brought people absentee ballot applications. They would pick up those applications, turn them in. And then when it came to the actual absentee ballot being filled out by the voter, they would often take those and mail them in. So this is actually a form of what's known as ballot harvesting, uh, which is controversial around the country. Different states have different laws for this. California's come under some fire, actually, for having a law that even the LA Times deems too permissive in, in not setting a limit for how many absentee ballots you can pick up. But this is what the kind of thing they utilized. They flipped control of the school board from a white majority to a black majority, and that was in the primary. They did it again in the general after some sort of shenanigans on the part of the establishment. And about a month after the uh, fall election, all 10 of these people were arrested, taken to jail, held there for a day, and then released. And then about a year later, they were charged with a total of 120 felony counts. The charges came under two provisions that we can get into. And there's this, there's this like kind of shocking picture of the equipment. I don't know if it was the 12 or just the 10, but on the, on the cover of the... It would have been, been the 10, because it was okay. right after they got On booked, the cover yeah. of the Quitman Free Press, this is 2010, and they are, they are up there on, you know, on the front page right. in their orange prison jumpsuits. Right. So Isakoff referred to this case before as a, a case of, a, of alleged voter fraud. But really what you establish in this, you know, exhaustively reported story is that it's a case of pretty serious overzealous law enforcement, right? I mean, it's really a case of alleged voter suppression, if you want to talk about what's alleged here, because it did start out as a case where these people were arrested and charged on accusations of voter fraud. But what it comes down to, as you look at the facts, is it looks like voter suppression. And you can read your, read the story and decide if, if you feel like that's what's at play here. But yes, the word overzealous, I think, is very apt and hard to dispute. Even the town officials who reported some of the incidents early on and were pushing for a, an investigation into these activists, into these organizers, told us on camera in a videotaped interview that they felt like the amount of charges and the seriousness of the charges were overkill. That was an actual word that was used. And so, yeah, to the degree that there was anything that was questionable done, I think as the investigation went on, it became clear that these people knew the law. They were trying to follow the law. And everybody who voted, with the exception of five people who I tried to track down with really mixed results, the overwhelming majority of voters who were helped by these people told investigators that they had voted the way they wanted to and for the, who they wanted to. So I should point out that this is a matter of national significance because Republicans, conservatives have contended for years now that voter fraud is a major problem mm -hmm. and that uh, it needs to be curbed and that this was a premier case of voter fraud, alleged voter fraud, that was brought and pushed by the then Secretary of State of Georgia, Brian Kemp, now the governor, and essentially the case fell apart. Yeah, and it's interesting. We document this in the piece and in the video. You can watch on the video the clip of the Fox News segment, which happened more than once, where they would show the, the pictures of the mugshots and they would talk about 
this case as if it were sort of a slam dunk example of voter fraud. They had the prosecutor on early on after the charges were filed and the arrests were made to talk about it. And a a lot of the tenor of that conversation is sort of giving the assumption, giving the impression that these people are already guilty before a trial had happened. What ended up happening is that the trial, the legal process dragged on for four years. They had one mistrial. They, they only actually brought one of the 12 defendants to trial. And they had one mistrial with her case, a second mistrial. And then finally, in September of 2014, she was found not guilty by a jury. And soon after that, all the charges were dropped. Even after that process, however, Kemp, who was overseeing the state elections board as the secretary of state, kept the matter open and subject to further investigation and further charges until 2016, when the attorney general issued legal guidance, stating clearly that the majority of these charges had been brought under a statute, basically erroneously. And by the way, it's worth pointing out that Brian Kemp later runs for governor against Stacey Abrams. Correct. Um, That's kind of the larger context. And, uh, you know, Secretary of State, the guy who's supposed to enforce the voting rights laws, and and meanwhile, he's running against Stacey Abrams, that that being one of her big causes. But talking about context, let's back up for a minute, because these kinds of events in the South don't happen in some historical uh, vacuum. Tell us a little bit about Quitman's ugly and violent racial history. Yeah, I mean, I had I had first heard of this story back in 2014 when it was still unresolved. The trial had yet to actually play out. And then I kind of was reminded of it in 2018 when I covered the governor's race there. And then I kind of came back to this story this past spring. And as I kind of started to report this story, I, I just one day I just thought I should look up the stats for the Jim Crow numbers on how many lynchings took place in this part of the state. Turns out, Equal Justice Initiative, headed by Brian Stevenson, has a report on this. And Brooks County had the third highest number of lynchings during Jim Crow. And I think one of the other counties was like on the western border, and one was, I think, just north of Atlanta. But a lot of those lynchings took place during two distinct periods. One was in the late 1890s, the other was in 1918. And so There's a plaque to a woman who was lynched in 1918 named Mary Turner, whose uh, the circumstances of her death are just truly, truly shocking to the conscience and horrific. I mean, revolting. And there's a plaque to her death at the site where she was believed to be lynched, which was erected in 2010, same year as all this happened, ironically. There are 13 bullet holes in that marker. It's a it's a heavy metal marker with 13 bullet holes and multiple other bullet marks on it where bullets didn't go through. So people have at least on one or more occasions gone to that plaque and gone to those measures. The same thing has happened to Emmett Till's marker in Mississippi. And so obviously there are people there who don't like this history, don't want to remember it, are, I think, frightened by the prospect of having the conversation about our history. And by the way, um, who, who, who is the Brooks that Brooks County is named after? Right. That was Preston Brooks, the congressman from South Carolina, not from Georgia, who uh, caned another se- a senator to, uh, um, is it Sumner? It was it Sumner? Charles Sumner? Charles Sumner. Sumner. Abolitionist. Oh, right. One of the most progressive abolitionist, abolitionist voices said, in the U.S. Senate. In the Senate. Yes. Right. Caned him almost to death on the floor of the Senate for, for, a, for Sumner's speech in which he both spoke out against slavery and insulted, I think, a friend or relative of uh, Brooks's. I just want to drill down on the allegations here and what they were and how they led to the investigation. Can and I just say one thing about sure. the history? Yeah. It's interesting going as an outsider to that part of the country because you quickly realize that people who live in that area, regardless of the color of their skin or their ethnic background, do not step into that conversation lightly and often sort of keep it at arm's length and I think prefer not to talk about it. It doesn't matter which what mm-hmm. their background is. So the investigation begins in 2009 when the postmaster of Quitman right. notifies the Secretary of State's office, you know, uh, then not run by Kemp, but a, Karen another Handel. Republican, yep. that large numbers of absentee ballots were arriving at the post office, quote, rolled together and tied with a rubber band in groups of anywhere from six to ten at a time. 
So the suspicion is that somebody is filling out all these absentee ballots and then mailing them en masse, which does sound like a not illegitimate reason to want to know more how this is happening. And I gather the claim was that the, that the law said you had to mail in your own absentee ballot. The law said that you must mail or personally deliver the absentee ballot. The folks who said this should be prosecuted said that that language, you must mail or personally deliver your ballot, meant that you had to personally mail the ballot. The attorney general in 2016 said that, no, it did not mean that. It mean that if you took the ballot to the elections office, you had to personally deliver that. But to mail it, does not mean you have to personally mail it. We're getting into a real legalese well, here, I'm right? I'm sorry. So you didn't have to personally mail it. You could give it to somebody who got you the absentee ballot you could and give let it somebody them mail they it could, for they you. They could put it in the mailbox. They could take it to the post office. They cannot take it to the elections office. Okay. So what, what's the norm around the country for mailing of absentee ballots? I think it's pretty different from state to state. And I haven't looked into every state. Right. Um, but, you know, I mentioned California earlier. There's no limit on how many absentee ballots you can take from somebody else and deliver probably to either the post office or the elections office. There are other states. Colorado, I think, has a limit of 10 per person that you can harvest, gather and deliver. So, so there's a range. Is it unreasonable to argue that laws that are permissive to the extent that they allow somebody to wrap up a whole bunch of absentee sure. ballots after they've collected them from somebody and then mailed them in, does that not raise the possibility of voter fraud? Because how do we know that the person whose ballot is being delivered right. actually filled that ballot out? Right. And I think that's what I mean, the L.A. Times, I may have mentioned this earlier, they wrote an editorial about California's law, basically saying that, you know, Republicans complained that after the 2018 midterms that that Democrats turned a bunch of congressional seats in California by using ballot harvesting and Republicans were complaining and implying Paul Ryan even implied this, that there was voter fraud at play there. The L.A. Times editorial and I talked to I reported and talked to other people in California about this, but they basically said, no, there was no voter fraud that we that was at all shown in California. Both sides, Republicans and Democrats, were doing the ballot harvesting. Democrats simply did it better. However, they also said that the lack of any limit on the number of ballots that you can take and deliver absentee ballots does open the door to foul play, whether that would be sort of organizations taking ballots in a very systematic, organized way and uh, maybe changing the ballot or losing the ballot. You know, there's various ways you could intervene. In We're a way supposed that's... to have secret ballots in this country. So when somebody right. uh, such as the Quitman 10 right. plus two are distributing these absentee ballots to people and then then collecting them. They didn't distribute them, the ballots. They distributed the applications. The applications. The ballots were then mailed to their house. Okay. When they're collecting, are, the, are they sealed or are they handing these third party facilitators the actual ballot so that they can see who they voted for? They're supposed to be sealed. There were examples in the equipment story where people were talking through and in some case helping people fill out their ballots. In some cases, these people had diabetes and they were, they were a person's mother and father. One of the equipment people was charged with felon, two separate felonies for helping both of her parents fill out their ballots. Her father has diabetes can't see well and has lost, you know, I think both feet. So that's an example where obviously that's not illegal. But if you do fill out a ballot for somebody and don't fill out an oath on the back of the form, that is getting into area where I think you may have overstepped. Yeah. Okay. So at the end of the day, all of the equipment 10 plus two are effectively cleared. The case is thrown out. Tell us what happened to the defendants and uh, some of the other players. Where are they now? And uh, what does the, the voter voting rights, voter suppression landscape look like in the wake of, uh, of equipment? I think in terms of the landscape, most people don't realize that the Shelby versus Holder decision by the Supreme Court in 2013 weakened the Voting Rights Act 
in some ways that people feel like have opened the door for states in the South, but also in other states where Republicans hold supermajorities to uh, enact more restrictive laws around the voting booth that would have had to get preclearance by the DOJ prior to the Shelby versus Holder decision. So that's a major point of concern for Democrats in the national scene. When it comes to the equipment story, the woman who was charged and, uh, and went to trial, Lula Smart, she had been probably the most, one of the most active two or three organizers and um, comes from a small town. I don't think she'd ever flown on an airplane, I think is one thing she had told me. She was working at her mom's restaurant, a soul food place called Rosie's. I think she was told she couldn't work there during the trial because that had been a locus of political activity. She considered suicide during this whole process. It was, it was as I said before, it was dragged out for many, many years. So all these people were living in legal limbo, facing multiple felony accounts and dozens of years in jail for all that time. After three, all three people who were on the school board were actually stripped of that position for a year by Governor Nathan Deal in 2012. They were reinstated a year later, basically. And basically, the interesting thing politically is that prior to this whole story, all the people in Brooks County pretty much voted Democrat. After this happens, most white voters start voting Republican. And so that kind of allowed the white majority, they, the whites are a majority of the county, but not of the city. And so in the county, the county school board is back to sort of where it was before. But the organizer of all these people, Nancy Dennard, she's now the mayor of the city in Quitman. Lula Smart is on the city council. And Diane Thomas, another of the school board members, she lost her seat on the county school board. But then when Nancy Dennard ran for mayor, she ran for Dennard's seat and got that seat back. And of course, Brian Kemp is the governor right. of Georgia now. Uh, but your story got the attention of Stacey Abrams, the Democratic candidate who Kemp beat and has become sort of a national voice on the issue of voter suppression. Yeah. And I've been following this sort of back and forth between Kemp and Abrams since 2014, when there was a, you know, a midterm election where there was something called missing voters. That was the first maybe the first time where Kemp's policies as Secretary of State got national attention because in the name of voter uh, fraud or protecting against voter fraud and protecting the sanctity of the ballot, you know, um, Kemp was doing things in some cases to remove people from the rolls, in some cases to kind of put them on hold because there had been some sort of maybe dispute about whether they were who they said they were. And this was something that continued through 2018. He did something called exact match, which kind of flagged people's ballots if there was any difference between their application and the records at the DMV or in the Social Security record. There were studies that showed that this disproportionately impacted voters of color and minorities and, and the poor. And then there were also purges of the voter rolls, uh, which you could, a lot of this stuff is really hard to parse through because there's an argument to be made, obviously, for keeping the voter rolls up to date. You don't want the voter rolls to have lots of people who don't live in the state, who, have, who are deceased, et cetera. But the voter purges to critics are a tool for overzealous secretaries of state like him. So Stacey Abrams on, a, uh, on another podcast, Pod Save America, called your story amazing. I said everyone has to read it, and I cannot disagree with that. It's a really excellent piece of reporting. I got one last kind of electoral political question to ask you. John is one of the best political reporters in Washington, and is also the author of Camelot's End, uh, about Teddy Kennedy's uh, primary challenge against Jimmy Carter back in 1980. His, what is it, his nephew? It's Joe, Bobby's grandson. Bobby's grandson. Who's Joe, uh, Ted Kennedy's. Yeah. Uh, Joe Kennedy oh. III <laughs> yeah. is seriously considering mounting a primary challenge against Ed Markey, the senior senator in Massachusetts. What's your reaction to that? I mean, it sounds like he, it's a go. I mean, they filed paperwork, and uh, he's basically explained his rationale for maybe doing it, which means he's going to do it, I think. And um, I'm a little surprised, I guess. I thought he was ambitious, but I, I didn't think he was that ambitious to try to take on a sitting Democratic his first few incumbent. Terms, he was pretty <clears throat> low-key. Yeah, yeah, he was. And I interviewed him on The Long Game, the podcast I do, a couple months ago. And I was my takeaway from that was that he was content to legislate in the House and kind of work his way up slowly 
maybe not wait forever, but be a gradualist. And this is a pretty audacious, bold move. I think the thing that kind of stands out to me is that Ed Markey has never been a super impressive politician. He's just sort of been one of these Massachusetts sort of bland liberal. He's kind of like a Dukakis figure, a John Kerry Dukakis, Massachusetts Democrat who doesn't really stand out, who doesn't really seem to stand for any one issue. So your your money's on Kennedy then? I don't know enough about the race, about who else might run, but I think if it's between Markey and Kennedy, I would say I'd bet on Kennedy. You know, my, sure. what I'm interested yeah. in is is what Elizabeth Warren does, because uh, yeah. probably not endorse um, anyone in a, in a, in a Democratic I believe, primary. But I who, believe she has publicly said Because Joe Kennedy was her Markey. student right. at Harvard. Right. Yeah. And, and he's been close, close to her. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's publicly said things in favor of Markey, but probably won't do a whole lot to help him, would be my guess. Well, I just think that a, a, a Kennedy Senate race, for all the, <laughs> other, all the problems in American politics, a Kennedy Senate race is a good thing to have. So I look forward to your coverage uh, on the uh, campaign trail covering uh, Joe Kennedy the third. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about him is that he doesn't drink. He drinks... A teetotaler. <laughs> he drank... He is a teetotaler. That he is drank true. milk Quite a college. difference yeah. from his uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, how the times have changed. <laughs> right. All right. John, thank you so much for being on Skullduggery. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks to author and New York Times reporter Carl Hulse and Yahoo News' own John Ward for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.